Thank you so much for being here. My name is Sarah. I'm a master's student in history here at Lincoln, and I'll be sharing tonight's lovely event. As last week, our talk tonight concerns politics, but unlike last week, it's politics as informed by history. As you're hopefully aware, the question for tonight is, is revolution always about religion? Marking the fourth in our eight-part Lincoln Lead series. Tonight, we'll go about approaching this question by first chancellor Dr. Sam Baruch-Taylor, a fellow of history at Lincoln, followed by George Artley, the DPhil student in history, also at Lincoln. And finally, we'll hear from Richard Spencer, our Lincoln alumnus and the Middle East correspondent for the Times. After, we'll have 15 minutes to hear our speakers discuss amongst themselves. And feel free to use the hashtag for the event, hashtag Lincoln Leads. Um, <laughs> so on that specifically modern note, I would like to introduce our first speaker, Dr. Sandra Taylor who received his default from Oxford in 2013 and has been a Jardy Fellow at Lincoln for the past two years. He has a book on religion and the 1960s cultural revolution forthcoming at Oxford University Press. Thank you, Sarah, for that nice introduction and welcome especially to all history and graduates amongst you. Um, it seems like revenge all the times I've made you read out your So. On a rainy day in Paris, on the 10th of November, 1793, a procession made its way into Notre Dame Cathedral. But this was not a Christian procession. It was organized by the French Revolutionary Government, and it inaugurated Notre Dame as an atheistic temple of reason. The crosses had all been removed, and two new symbols took center stage. First of these was a torch of truth, which was ceremonially lit as the procession made its way down the nave. And the other was the enthronement of reason, symbolized in this case by an opera singer dressed in white. And the ritual was concluded by the vigorous singing of hymns to liberty. Now this incident raises thorny questions on the subjects of religion and revolutions, which is of course how exactly we're going to define religion. Like many scholars, my research suggests that religion is not a fixed thing that has a universal definition, but it is instead an inventive concept with various shades of meaning, um, which differ depending on the time and the cultural context in which it happens to be in. So I think we should start by noting um, that religion seems to be a Western concept deriving from the Latin word religio, with no precise equivalents in many non-Western cultures. So for example, when Western explorers first encountered um, African and uh, American indigenous peoples, there's all kinds of confusion in the Westerners' minds about whether the people they met had a religion or not, and there are all kinds of debates about that. But even within the Western tradition, there's been no agreement about how religion should be defined. In medieval Catholicism, the primary definition of religion counts that um, the central criteria was whether you are a member of a particular group of people or not. But for Reformation Protestants, the key criterion of religion was what you believed, hence their um, internal habits of uh, writing down fixed creeds. But in the world of ancient Rome, the primary criterion was whether or not you did the rituals correctly. So out of those three groups, only the ancient Romans would probably recognize what happened in Notre Dame in November 1793 as religious practice. But to confuse matters still further, the Roman concept of religio simply meant any duty that you had to perform. It equally applied uh, to the gods, to the emperor, and to one's family. The ancient Romans, when they talked about religio, did not distinguish in the modern Western way between religious duties and political duties. Now, because of the local variability of the term religion, tonight I want to stick to the Western world and to Christianity. And I'm going to offer a broad survey, and I'm going to argue that if, we want to if we're prepared to define religion broadly enough, the answer to our question is yes, because visions for how society ought to be organised are inextricably linked 
to assumptions about the meaning of human life. There is no such thing on this argument as a morally neutral society. From a cultural history viewpoint, historians should always consider the sacred and the political in the same conceptual framework. But before getting on to Western revolutionaries, um, I want to briefly and, and very briefly include set up some context. And this is the political theory of Christendom. Because Christianity is monotheistic, it, it, uh, it distinguishes very sharply between the external creator and the temporal creation. And in first millennium Europe, that distinction gave rise um, to a political theory which distinguished between the churches, who were responsible for eternal things, and the states, who were responsible for temporal matters. So th thus, even at the end of the 5th century, um, a pope uh, could write to Emperor Anastasius, stating that there were two powers. This is known as the doctrine of the two powers. There are two powers by which this world is chiefly ruled, namely the sacred authority of the priests and the royal power. So he told the emperor that while you, political leaders, are permitted honourably to rule over humankind, yet in things divine you should bow your head between the leaders of the clergy. And so this whole approach to politics assumed a basic division of authority between the priests and the kings. If the ministers of religion, he went on, recognising the supremacy granted you from heaven in matters affecting the public order, obey your laws, with what resonance should you, the emperor, not yield to them, the clergy, obedience to whom is assigned to the dispensing of the sacred mysteries of religion? Now, in practice, of course, across Western history, it was, that was just a theory. It was much more complicated than this. Throughout the history of Christendom, the two partners of church and state often quarrelled about where exactly that boundary between the moral and the political really led. And there were frequent power struggles between the two. And in this example, Pope Gelasius, who wrote that letter I've just been quoting to you, told, immediately told the emperor that in fact it was his one of the two powers that was the most important. But the assumption that the religious function and the political function, whilst linked, are essentially distinct, that assumption remains. It was very rare for either the church or the state to envisage completely abolishing the other one and permanently taking over its functions. So in England and then Britain, uh, for example, as you go uh, to, the, to the seat of power in London, you have the House of Parliament and you have Westminster Abbey. The proximity of those two buildings speaks to the close partnership of church and state, but the fact they are two different buildings speaks to the distinction between them. But of course there were people in the Middle Ages and in the early modern period who wanted to get rid of that distinction, who wanted to fuse religion and politics completely. Um, and these were the various types of Christian millenarians. So in mainstream Christian theology, the distinction between the church and the state is supposed to exist until the end of the world. And then at the end of the world, Jesus Christ will return and set up the perfect government, thus abolishing the distinction between the church and the state. So it is that the book of Revelation is specifically prophesied that in heaven there will be no church buildings, because the whole of society will be one big church. So in times of crisis, heterodox Christians often did decide that the end times were upon them, and that therefore they should be fusing the church and the state to set up a new heavenly society. In 1534 and 1535, for example, a group of radical Anabaptists created a new Jerusalem in the German city of Munster. Fusing religion and politics, they decided that obedience to their theory of political movement was an absolute moral duty. Taking over the city's government, they launched a theocracy. They introduced a community of goods, the absolute dictatorship of their chief prophet, compulsory polygamy, and expulsion of those who persisted in persisting more conventional Christian viewpoints. When the conventional authorities besieged the city, the Anabaptists defended their revolution almost to the death. Thus, I would argue that the first Western revolutionaries were millenarian Christians. Less extreme than these Christian revolutionaries are a second category whom I would label Christian rebellions. 
So apart from its distinctive uh, distinction between religion and politics, one of the other central points of criticism political theory is that the political authorities were always supposed to be obeyed, and the only way of getting out of that requirement was to have an overriding religious reason for one's disobedience. In Christian rebellions, consequently, political tensions often began about worldly affairs, but as soon as they acquired a religious dimension, that legitimised them rising up in, uh, in um, widespread violence. So the British Civil Wars, for example, the tensions between King and Parliament began on the subject of taxation. But it was only once the parliamentarians became convinced that the King was preparing to inflict Catholicism on, on them that they, they were prepared to rise in outright rebellion. In the American Revolution of 1776, similarly, tensions also originated on the subject of taxation. But it took the widespread idea that rebellion was God's will, fueled by the idea that the Crown was preparing to inflict bishops on the American colonists to enable the tensions to turn into a military rebellion. In the second category of these Christian, this second category of Christian rebellions, Christianity provided a crucial way of legitimising the rebellion by giving people permission to rise up against the established authorities. In both the British and American cases, the revolutionary coalitions often had been elements in them. There was something vaguely theocratic about the protectorate, for example, but these tendencies were usually kept into control by more orthodox kinds of Christians. So in this category, which I'm labeling being Christian rebellions, Christianity also played a crucial role, but it was a different role. So it's against that backdrop that we now come to the modern revolutions in European history. I'm thinking especially of the French Revolution of 1789, the Russian Revolution of 1917, and the Nazi Revolution of 1933. Now these regimes are not normally thought of as religions, but I'm going to follow uh, the new line of post-secular scholarship in arguing that these regimes are in fact political religions. That is, they shatter the conventional difference between politics on the one side and religion on the other. So that loyalty to a political cause becomes the supreme test of morality. And it's in this context that the state begins to organise religious rituals, such as the French Revolutionary Festivals, the fervent Nazi rallies, and the cult of Stalin. Often these revolutionary movements escalated over time. Thus, the French Revolution began with a ritual, the Tennis Court Oath of 1789, um, but it's only by 1793-94 that it's producing fully-fledged revolutionary festivals. And then, yes, in 1930, the, the, the Nazis produced fully-fledged political religious festivals at the Nuremberg rallies. Um, if you ever watched, you ever watched Triumph of the Will, which is on YouTube, it's a 1935 Nazi documentary slash propaganda film, um, and the kind of the, the religious elements, the sheer passion and the fervour of the crowd as they're listening to the um, to Hitler's speeches is absolutely unmistakable. It's noteworthy, I think, that all three of these regimes came to power during episodes of great anxiety and also great state weakness, such as through war or, or political or economic instability. All three of these regimes promised the creation of a new and a glorious and completely new form of society, contextualising politics as a moral mission which could be brought to final completion to produce um, a perfect regime. All three of these regimes were willing to kill and sacrifice on a large scale to implement their vision of the new society. And all three of them were experiences deeply exciting by those who participated in them. So if we're willing to include those regimes in our catching of religion, and I think we should, then for the modern period we can say that while chronic instability should be initiated by political failure, in the really radical revolutions, the ones that really do their best to transform societies, are those driven by these types of political religion. <coughs> so so far I've discussed three kinds of revolutions, and so we've got we've got Christian millenarianisms that both use Christianity as an legitimation and also have a Christian vision of politics and society being united. We've got the Christian rebellions, which use Christianity as their legitimation, but then don't try and set up a fusion of 
politics and religion. And we've also got the secular revolutions, which don't use Christianity as a means of legitimation, but then do attempt to fuse politics and religion. And of course, whether we accept this argument or not depends entirely on whether you accept the, the wider definition of religion that I'm pushing. In each of these cases, I've argued, the central question is not how much religion should there be, but whether or not there should be a distinction between the moral and the political. And to go even more widely, if anyone's prepared to kill or be killed for the vision of society should, how society should be run, there is something to be said for the view that that vision should be considered as part of their religion. On this definition of religion, we might even say that free speech, democracy, human rights, the kinds of things that people are prepared to die for, um, are in fact religious values. They are being sacralised, they are being made into religious values by the people who are prepared to die for them. It seems appropriate in closing to say something about the 60s, uh, the Cultural Revolution, which in Britain at least, puts a large question mark over the Christian model, which in Britain endured for a very long time. So during the Second World War, for instance, the British government was actually prepared to uh, cease, on this particular day, cease factory production so that the factory workers could go and attend national days of prayer services. In the 1950s, the British churches still played a major role in influencing moral legislation. But in the 1960s, conventional wisdom redefined Britain as a secular society in which religion did not play a determining moral role. In multiculturalism, for example, the state gives voices to the different religions, but it's careful not to allow any of them to usurp its authority and to impose its vision on the rest of society. But as the partnership between religion and the state has eroded, it seems to me, that politics has once again increasingly become morally charged. In recent referendum debates and presidential elections, which of course shall remain nameless, um, it seems to me that there are two factions, a large element of both of which I think that dissent from their moral point of view represents a serious moral failure. And this, it seems to me, is one of the reasons why political debate at the moment between these two factions um, seems to have such a low intellectual content. Thus, on this view, secularisation does not abolish moral warfare, it merely relocates it to the political sphere. Visions of how society should be arranged are inextricably bound up with normative visions about the purpose of humanity, I argue. So by adopting a broad definition of religion and a narrow definition of revolution, it seems to me, broadly speaking, the answer to this question is yes, true religions are always ultimately about religion. Focus on historical definitions of revolution rather than the religion uh, part of this. 
If I were to sit down right now, I imagine a few of you would be a bit miffed, uh, though no doubt many more of you would be mightily relieved, um, but I shall soldier on regardless for the sake of 48%. Uh, now, in my undergraduate cunning, or at least I forced that way, uh, the way I went about answering the question, I uh, also state that most revolutions in history are, on the whole, uh, and despite what we might normally think, uh, conservative affairs. Uh, that is, they are revolutions of 180 degrees, uh, undertaken to stop, resist, and prevent change uh, that is perceived by revolutionaries to be damaging their personal interests uh, and the interests of the state and society more generally. Uh, but today, when we think of revolutions as being all about forward-looking change, out with the old system, in with a new model, uh, and let's burn the lot to the ground and shoot them for good measure, uh, is instead a perception that has been warped by how perhaps the two most famous revolutions in history, the French and the Russian, have been presented, especially at school. Uh, now, arguably, uh, that wasn't the case in either of the revolutions, uh, but that's something we might have to discuss over a pint of deepest later on. Now, in terms of a 180-degree revolution, uh, where might religion fit into that model? Well, back when I sat the exam, uh, from what I can remember, I argue that since the Christian churches of Europe operate on the basis of an apocalyptic conception of the movement of time, all change could be conceived, uh, considered as a form of decay, one step further towards Armageddon, and therefore something to be violently resisted. Uh, indeed, it was a mindset forged in the upheaval of the collapse of the Roman Empire, where the church fathers literally perceived themselves and the church as being the only bulwark left against the total collapse of civilization. Um, now, I think I said a lot more on the finance paper, but I want to stick with this point for now, uh, because this notion of turning the clock back to a better and purer time can, as I'm sure you recognise, also be used uh, incredibly effectively to justify actual real change. Uh, that is, the abandonment of an existing system of government, constitutional arrangement, or entire system of belief, by presenting such a change as a return to an older way of doing things that has subsequently become corrupted. Now, to illustrate this, let's step back a few decades from time uh, when I set my exams and into the England of Henry VIII. Now, most of you will uh, all know that Henry VIII had 99 problems, of which wives did comprise six. But Henry's <laughs> woman troubles, despite what we were taught in school, were not the only cause of the Reformation in England. Uh, that is, the Church of England splitting from the Roman Catholic Church over the course of the 1530s initially. Now, the Reformation was a Europe-wide movement, uh, and in terms of how it played out in England, its results were truly revolutionary. Uh, the problem was, and still is, though, to the delight of historians, uh, that no one could entirely agree on what this revolution had changed, nor what role religion had played in the shift. Well, for one group, the religious revolution that had occurred was an institutional one. It was about the seizure of power uh, and wealth. Uh, and one way of looking at it was that, in many ways, and in terms of how the church was to be run, not much had changed at all. Uh, an, Itali uh, an Italian prince in the shape of the Pope had been replaced with an English one in the shape of King. Uh, Brexit meant Brexit, but it wasn't meant to involve the wholesale trashing or overhaul of how the church operated or even thought about itself. Uh, indeed, for some of the clergy, it was an opportunity. Uh, they were free from the shackles of the Vatican and were finally in a position to govern themselves and the church in their own interests. Uh, there was influence to exert and money to be made. Uh, this was a hostile takeover of the Catholic Church's England department by its own employees. Uh, but this was also presented as a return to how things used to be. Uh, to the church as it had existed in England before papal control had been forced upon it over the course of the 12th and 13th centuries. There was, of course, another way of understanding the revolution that had just occurred, uh, and that was as a revolution motivated by and about faith and ideas. The break from Rome had occurred due to the need to reform the church from root to branch, 
to throw out the corrupt clergy, the tyrannical bishops, the gaudy churches and shrines designed to leech cash from the poor, to read the Bible in English and get closer to the original and true meaning of Christian faith. Uh, of course, this wasn't a new sentiment. Indeed, Lincoln College was founded in 1427 precisely to suppress these sorts of dangerous ideas. <laughs> but again, you can see how this might be presented as simultaneously radical and conservative, a change from what existed, but a return to what once was. Which one of these views, though, truly represents the influence of religion on the causes and course of the revolution that occurred in church and state in England during those decades? Well, to answer that, we need to consider why wanting the Bible to be in English in 1427 got you executed and an Oxford College founded to make sure that no one else would make the same mistake. But yet, just over 100 years later, similar views were required to make you the Archbishop of Canterbury. We have, uh, in fact, come up against one of the great debates in early modern English history. How much of what occurred from the Reformation onwards was driven by religious fervour and faith, uh, and how much of these events were driven by the secular political concerns underlying the development of the English state. Well, let's jump forward to an event often said to mark the end of the early modern period in England and try and find an answer. Uh, the Glorious Revolution of 1688 is rather oddly named. Uh, one of the many ways in which it was glorious was that, despite being so monumental, it involved no bloodshed. There was, however, some bloodshed on English soil. King James II, in his tent, surrounded by the English army that had been raised to fight the invading Dutch force that had landed at Torbay, headed by William, Prince of Orange, was plagued with a terrible nosebleed. Why had William invaded? Well, he gave the following declaration at the time. It is both certain and evident to all men that the public peace and happiness of any state or kingdom cannot be preserved where the laws, liberties, and customs established by lawful authority in it are openly transgressed and annulled more especially where the alteration of religion is endeavoured, and that a religion which is contrary to the law is endeavoured to be introduced, upon which those who are most immediately concerned in it are indispensably bound to endeavour to preserve and maintain the established laws, liberties and customs, and above all the religion and worship of God that is established among them, and to take such an effectual care that the inhabitants of the said state or kingdom may neither be, be deprived of their religion nor of their civil <coughs> rights. Well, what did any of this mean? Uh, why did there need to be another revolution? What did James II be doing to the religion and civil rights of the English, and which one was worse? Well, let's start with religion first. James II was a Roman Catholic. Uh, this was a problem, because he was also head of the Church of England, which only existed in the form it did, as we've already seen, precisely because it wasn't Roman Catholic. Uh, this is a point that both sides in the institutional versus faith side of the religion debate could probably agree on. If James was Roman Catholic, this meant he had spiritual and political allegiance to the Pope, and the Pope was a foreigner. So too was Louis XIV, who was also a Catholic, and to make matters worse, French, with a big army that liked killing Protestants. Why was James a Catholic? Here, the fusion of the political and the spiritual becomes even more complicated. James's father, Charles I, had been executed at the end of the Civil War by his Protestant subjects, and James took a very simple lesson from this, that a Protestant king is an oxymoron. Because at its heart, Protestantism had a potentially fatal flaw when it came to the successful governance of a kingdom by a king. It was founded on an act of rebellion, and it encouraged people to think for themselves in matters of faith. If a king could dismiss a pope, then why should an English congregation not be the same to their bishops, or even their king, if they did not meet the standards that were expected? The Reformation had opened a Pandora's box of dissension to authority, both sacred and secular, a box that the papacy well knew could be fatal, hence the founding of this college, 
but a box that many 16th century monarchs uh, and princes had decided was worth opening, indeed needed to be opened, if they, were to be, if they were to be the true rulers of their kingdoms without outside papal interference in secular or spiritual matters. But by the early 17th century, this had begun to bite the crown on the behind. Many of their Protestant subjects believed in a reformed church that should be outside state control altogether. And in this sense, they shared a dangerous common point of view with Catholics, which was that they denied royal authority in spiritual matters. And if they denied royal superiority in spiritual matters, what was to stop them from denying royal superiority when it came to making laws? Who the king married? Who he went to war with? And how he raised the money to fight them? James seems to have tried to shut the lid on the box by converting back to the Catholic faith and by putting the legal and civil mechanisms in place to gradually attempt to bring the rest of the nation back with it. But it hadn't worked. Why? Well, in the end, James succeeded in doing the one thing that most monarchs had failed to do since the Reformation, and that was to get most of the different types of Protestants in England to set aside their differences and to join together, and to collectively sit on their hands when William of Orange invaded, hence the lack of blood. And it is here that I think we can come to some tentative conclusions about the importance of religion in all of these upheavals. James had made no secret of his being a Catholic. Indeed, it was well known that he was a Catholic, and some members of Parliament had tried to ban him from coming to power before he did, but they failed. James's faith alone was not enough to trigger a revolution. What he had to do to trigger that was to alienate the very moderate Tory Protestants that had supported him in the first place, and he did that by taking political and legal power away from them and giving it to those who he thought would support his government policies. He was turning the system on its head and a revolution was needed to write it again. So the majority of people were prepared to tolerate his being a Catholic king, but not his behaving in the sort of way that all good Englishmen thought that Catholic kings behaved. And here is the point. This revolution and many others are influenced by religion to the extent that one's religious belief can provide, or be manipulated to provide, a framework to determine the practical use and distribution of power within a society. And that can include the institutional power of the church itself. That is not to say that religion merely acts as a cipher in these matters. Faith can drive people to do many things, but faith alone is not enough. Revolutions are earthly events, grounded in the grubby power games of mankind, even if one is prepared to enter the next life and join the angels for them. Thank you. Thank you, George. That was much funnier than I expected it to be. Now I present our final speaker, uh, Richard Spencer. Richard was a classics at Lincoln between 1984 and 1988 before completing a diploma in journalism at Cardiff University. Following worked on local newspapers in Yorkshire and at the Daily Telegraph, performing a number of roles. In 2002, he became the China correspondent, and in 2009, the Middle East correspondent covering major affairs such as the Arab Spring Uprising and the wars in Libya, Syria, and Iraq, and as such he traveled regularly in Syria while it's still possible. He joined the Times as Middle East correspondent last year. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's very nice to be back. I'm, I'm used to speaking last. When I was a student here, um, I had a very glamorous but very lazy tutorial partner for my four years here who um, relied on my ability to, to enforce me always to, give, to read out my essay first to our tutor, and relied on the fact that I could ramble on for an entire hour, if it needed to be, to cover the passion of living work. 
And Nigel Wilson, who's sort of around, you may know, um, uh, eventually cottoned on to this. And one tutorial brought me to a halt after half the tutorial and said, So, Sweden, what do you think? It's supposed to go to read out your essay, but Sweden was very bright as well as very lazy. And she just said, I find that I agree with Richard. That sounds nice, but you let me carry on. Anyway, since then I've gone into a very non academic field. I'm not going to try and aspire to the conceptual heights of Sam and George, but I will talk a little bit about Syria and the extent to which religion is indeed the driving force in the war in Syria. And I'm going to be just talking about Aleppo. Uh, because it's such a huge sprawling war that uh, I think it helps to focus on one place and one group of people. I, I, I'd like to, if I may, just start off with a little bit of, sort of audience research, since I don't often get a chance to actually meet the audience. Um, I, I assume that most of you have watched the news a bit about the battle for, for Syria and what's been going on there in the last few years. But can I just ask you what you think is the cause, or the, the prime cause, or main cause of the war in Syria? Um, how many of you, and you can answer more than one because there are many causes, but how many of you think it, it has started off as a democratic uh, uprising in favour of freedom, democracy, all the things you like in the West against a dictatorial regime? I mean, just put hands up if you think that's a good description. Okay, few of you. How many of you think that it was a Western conspiracy to undermine a regime that had been a core of the resistance to the Zionist imperialist project. Uh, anyone buy that, that, uh, that viewpoint? None of you. <laughs> My god, that's amazing. Um, <laughs> I thought that's what everyone thought, students, but maybe I presume it wasn't. Um, how many of you think it was a revolution that was, um, was originally democratic, but then was um, usurped by Gulf states to uh, inflict Wahhabi, Salafi, Islamism, on a region that was opposed to it. Any, anyone think that? Anyone? Okay. Quite a few, yeah, fair enough, okay. And how many of you would agree with Charlotte Church, um, famous singer and political commentator, that it was all about global warming? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, the global warming theory should not be overlooked, uh, and that's where I'm going to start off. The, the Middle East, even before the uprising started across the Middle East in 2011, 2008, 2010 in Tunisia, it was an economic basket case. Like actually a lot of the Mediterranean, there's a lot of similarities um, between what happened in, in the southern eastern Mediterranean, the, 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 the Arab world, and in southern Europe, where property booms had collapsed uh, with the financial crisis, money was, with, was coming out of the market, economies were in disarray, a sudden you know, a promise of wealth that was a, it was a mirage based on oil money and other forms of sort of financial bubble money had gone into the Middle East and then suddenly been withdrawn, uh, leaving uh, populations very disillusioned. Uh, that was a sort of general thing. In Syria, you had on top of this an appalling drought that had struck uh, the northern and eastern parts of Syria from 2006 to 2009. And that's the Charlotte Church theory. And it has been, um, it has been uh, argued seriously by serious academic people that, that not only was global warming responsible for the drought in 2006 to 2009 in Syria, but that also it was worse than other droughts in the Mediterranean, in the, uh, in the Arab world and the Middle East, which of course are you know, regular phenomena in the Middle East, it's a very dry area. 
and, and specifically argued that the, the um, anthropogenic aspect of global warming had worsened the drought in Syria in 2006, 2009. And the effects were devastating. I mean, they, they were very, I mean, it, it didn't get a lot of coverage. Syria was a very closed country, uh, as still is in many ways. Um, didn't get a lot of coverage. But in the northeast of Syria, um, the, the, the government estimates were 1.3 million people had their livelihoods destroyed. Uh, 800,000 people had their livestock wiped out completely. Uh, this was a, a, these are very rural parts of, of Syria. And that had a social consequence because um, Syria is not quite clear what the figures are, but certainly between 300 and 500,000 people in those three years moved from the countryside of north and northeastern Syria into the urban areas, particularly Aleppo, which is the biggest city in, in northern Syria. And when they went to the cities, they uh, obviously were living in very poor circumstances. They had no income, and they were um, forced into the poorer neighbourhoods, obviously, of cities. I mean, that's fairly obvious. And in Aleppo, there were already areas ready to receive them, um, which is my second social phenomenon point about Syria, that the uh, astonishing growth of Middle East populations, which, again, underpin all the Middle East uprisings, um, so the population of Syria in 1950 was 3.3 million. Uh, the population in 2010 was 21 million. Okay, so that's a seven-fold increase in the yeah, yeah. 60 years. That had been encouraged, as in many socialist countries in the third world, that the population was seen as a driving force for nationalism. That if you, if you encourage people to have children, a big population with a, with a, a form of um, socialist strength. So you see that right across the world from Mao and China, through to the uh, Assad regime in um, Syria, which banned contraception in the 1970s. It wanted a high growth rate. So you have uh, another country do the same in the, in the Middle East. So, in, so by 2010, the median age in Syria was 21. Uh, so you so think about half the population is under 21 uh, in an economic environment where uh, the, the, the agriculture was collapsing uh, because of the drought. Now, short shows is actually wrong. The, the, there are many other ways of explaining the um, effect of the drought uh, economically in, in northern Syria without relying on global warming. Um, in fact, as, as I say, there's regular droughts. And in fact, the, 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 the latest study showed the drought in 2006 to 2009 was no worse in terms of rainfall than previous droughts which have happened throughout the 20th century and throughout history. What was true is that it coincided with economic policies. Um, that had been uh, implemented by the Assad regime for 50 years since Assad's, current Assad's father came to power in 1970, um, which had been disastrous. Um, uh, in order to promote agriculture, again, the, the foundation of the third world uh, socialist project is to boost agricultural production. Uh, you boost agriculture by, by encouraging people to stay on the land, encouraging them to farm, giving them subsidies. So the huge uh, diesel subsidies were given to farmers uh, from the 1970s onwards, which from the 1960s onwards. Uh, and in terms of irrigation, uh, you subsidize water pumps and you subsidize well, um, well digging. And uh, so these socialist policies were implemented from 1970 to 2000. Um, doubled the amount of area in Syria that was uh, irrigated and under uh, agriculture. This is an obviously very arid country, totally uh, crazy policies we now conceive from an environmental point of view. The water table in parts of northeastern Syria fell by 100 meters in that time. 100 meters, that's an incredible fall in the water table. 
And so the drought was worse in 2006 to 2009, the previous droughts, but because of government, uh, crazy government policies. Assad Jr. tried to reverse those processes. Assad Jr. had no interest in socialism. Uh, he believed in economic liberalization. So he did this absolutely fantastically clever thing in 2008. Uh, in, in, um, uh, as part of the liberalization policies, he abandoned the subsidy of diesel fuel to farmers. So just when they actually needed subsidies, it was, they were taken away from them. Uh, and again, the, this was part of that, you know, that's a very specific thing, but this was part of the whole series of policies that he carried out to remove agricultural subsidies from 2000 uh, onwards. And that had an effect of uh, removing, I think it was between the end of the 1990s and the late 2000s, 2000, the, the, uh, the number of people um, working the land in Syria fell by 450,000, which was a drop of a third uh, of the number of people actually working on the land. So you had, in, in, that, in that very short period, 2006 to 2009, you had about 300 to 500,000 people, people um, moving from the countryside into the cities. Uh, in the longer period, from, the, from over the sort of course of a decade, you had maybe half a million people with their, half a million workers with their families, so they, a family in Syria normally worked out about five or six people, children and, and parents. So maybe um, two to three million people, in fact, in total, moved to the suburbs, the new suburbs of Syria's cities, particularly the northern cities, uh, where, the, where the drought was. So these are the cities uh, of Aleppo, uh, Raqqa, Idlib, Hasaka, Kamishli, uh, uh, Derizor, and these, of course, are the cities you now see in the news as being the focus point of radical Islamist um, rebellion in, in Syria. And there's a very, very telling statistic about the um, economic effect of this, which is that uh, the, 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 the Assad's reforms worked in, in terms of overall GDP, as liberal reforms do. Uh, so the GDP under Assad tripled. The only places in Syria, the, the only the 14 governments in Syria, the five places where GDP sank per head of population were the, um, the Syria in, um, in Syria, like a lot of the countries, the, uh, if you have a province, it's divided between regional groups. So that you have a city, which is like Aleppo, and then you have Greek Aleppo, which is the rest of the province, uh, so the rural areas of the province outside the main city. So the, the five areas of, city, of, of Syria which experienced negative GDP uh, were Reef Aleppo, Reef Raqqa, uh, Reef Hasaka, Reef Idlib, and Reef Derizor. So the areas that became the focus of the rebellion were the areas that had been devastated by uh, economic mismanagement. So there's, a, there's an argument for saying that global warming, or if you be a more, slightly more active about it, is disastrously agricultural policies provided a very, very angry, um, deprived, economically desperate population uh, living in the rough neighborhoods of what were, in some cases, leper cities, rich cities. In Aleppo, you have, a, you have this amazing um, city, which many tourists have been to. I don't know if you've been, been to them, but I've had many friends who talk about the wonders of Aleppo. Uh, and they talk about the, you know, the old city, these amazing castles and palaces and churches opposite mosques. It's an amazing multicultural, uh, multi-sectarian city. Uh, very prosperous, the, you know, the Silk Road city that attracted merchants from all over the world for, for, for a millennia. Um, and then you have the other side, you have East Aleppo, 
which you've seen on the, on, on the news is now totally destroyed. But even when it wasn't totally destroyed, it was uh, a whole series of rather gym-crack suburbs built in concrete, often built illegally, um, very uh, built corruptly. So um, the local governor would have total power over, over your province, and you gave up your um, development contracts to your, to your friends in terms of kickbacks. And they were often done illegally um, as well. So um, the the residents of one, one when I was reporting uh, one battle, I got chatting to someone on a street corner where there was a tank firing off around the corner, and I was chatting to this guy, and he said, "Oh, you know, we all had to review because every year we had to go to the district governor's office and pay him not to demolish our apartment blocks because our apartment blocks were illegal, and he had to go every every year to pay a payback to the to the local district." Uh, chief uh, for him not to for him not to sign the order demolishing their illegal settlements. Um, now interdicts, you have this guy um, in the middle in the middle of all this very sort of geographic urban planning understanding. This is a guy called Abdul Hakam, and as you can probably tell from his beard, he is an Islamist, and he emerged in the early 2000s in Aleppo. And remember, this is a regime which is, uh, from the beginning, been anti-religion. I mean, not anti-religion in the sense of persecuted religion, but it, it says we stand above religion. We are a secular dictatorship. Uh, we don't allow religion. And in the 1980s, they crushed the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, being a member of the Muslim Brotherhood was, a, was an offence punishable by death in the 1980s onwards. Um, no Islamist politics was allowed. And so this guy appears, and he starts preaching at a mosque in, in Aleppo. He uh, um, uh, found a group called Gurugar Shah, which kind of means sort of holy followers of Syria. And uh, he um, he posts himself in the in the post 9/11 Islamist wave, and uh, he um, he's fanatically anti-American, and he encourages people to go and fight in Iraq. Uh, he always denies organising people to go and fight in Iraq, but that was his message: was go and join the uprising, the Islamist, so that the the, the Al Qaeda uprising in Iraq, and which was after, um, before and during the American and British occupation of Iraq. Uh, I don't know what to call those words. Uh, yeah, so uh, his his slogans were things like, "Guests of our country, our land, slaughter them like cattle, uh, burn them." Yes, I mean the Americans. Um, and then and he was a he was a fanatic he was a he was a, he was a great speaker he had he used to get huge um, followers and he used to make them cry and I was reminded of Bernie Sanders talking about the emotion of Iran um, this was very much uh, this is very much what these uh, these um, uh, preachers can achieve with their with their flock and he became very popular now the interesting thing is how is he allowed to speak you know how why was he this. You know, when Islamism had been banned in Syria for decades, why did he suddenly emerge? And um, uh, the interesting answer was when he was finally killed, he was murdered in 2007, and there were a whole bunch of military intelligence people turned up at his funeral in Aleppo. Um, and um, it's fairly clear, I mean, it's, he's still a bit of a mystery as to who he was, where he came from, and how he was allowed to speak, but it's fairly clear that he was encouraged by the regime to speak for two reasons. One was because the regime wanted um, people to go and fight against the Americans in Iraq because they they were afraid that they were the next regime that was going to be toppled. Um, so they encouraged fighters, and the the Mukhabarat, the military intelligence in Syria, um, helped fighters go um, 
across the desert into um, Iraq to join the resistance in Iraq on the ground. If you tied up the Americans and couldn't stay, they would then come after the regime in, in Syria. And that cooperation actually lasted until 2010. Um, the, the Iraqi intelligence uh, wired up a, um, a, a goal in, um, in Al-Qaeda, or whatever you call it, uh, Islamic State now, um, in 2010, and recorded him being encouraged by the Syrian military intelligence uh, to um, take a bomb into Syria. So that relationship between the um, Al-Qaeda and uh, Syrian military intelligence lasted uh, probably from about 2002, 2003, at least until 2010. So at the same time, you have a secular regime saying it's secular. It's also encouraging uh, a Salafi form of Islamism to, um, to develop. And the great thing about Salafism, um, which I'm sure you all know the term Salafism, there, there are two types of Salafism. There's, there's activist Salafism, which does, which is the, 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 the version you see with ISIS, which is all about taking seats of power. Now, there's, a, there's another version of Salafism, which says that the important thing is to follow your leader. And the, uh, in Sharia law, it says that you, know, the, you, that you have to obey your enemy, your prince. And the one thing that Abu al-Fakar did, which um, pleased the uh, regime, was he always said the regime is your enemy, uh, Bashar is your enemy. So even though Bashar was not a Sunni Muslim, uh, is not a Sunni Muslim, uh, he uh, went along with the idea that, that Bashar was your enemy and that you had to obey Bashar. And that the revolution was only to be used, the Islamist revolution was a, something that happened outside Syria, not within Syria. So um, you had these two phenomena going on in Syria in the 2000s, uh, leading up to the revolution. You had, um, you had on the one hand, this, this very, uh, you know, very cheap, you know, economic uh, factors in play. Um, of a corrupt regime that was resented for taking away the livelihoods of people who had depended on it. And you had a, um, this um, uh, encouragement of a very, very radical, violent form of Islamism, um, so long as it was turned against the neighboring state, not against your own state. And obviously, you can see how that backfires with the revolution, where um, uh, the the, the local guys who get involved in, in, in the uprising don't really distinguish between the, the stop distinguishing between the, the foreign regime and the regime at home. And uh, they start, um, uh, and, and uh, they um, take up arms against the one, and they don't really see it as either an Islamist revolution or a non Islamist revolution. They see it as a revolution. Um, they are themselves Sunni Muslims, and they have been encouraged to think that. Um, they have been encouraged to think that religion is, the, um, is a politically motivated force, and they have their own, which is who is now Bashar al-Assad. Um, I think I'm probably going to end, um, but I just uh, wanted to um, just this. So, um, I'm going to, I don't think I can bring up two slides at once, can I? Anyway. So when the revolution arrives in Aleppo in um, 2012, uh, Aleppo didn't join in the revolution at first. But when it did join in, um, it was led in the first instance by two guys. Uh, one's this guy. And he's a guy called Abdul Khalil Saleh. Um, and he is a, um, 
uh, was he was killed in, killed in 2013, but he led a, um, the biggest brigade in Aleppo, called the New Tawhid. And Tawhid means uh, oneness, it's the oneness of God. And it's a, so Tawhid is a, is, a, is a word that crops up a lot in uh, Islamist groups, uh, and particularly in quite sectarian Islamist groups, because the um, Alawite, the, the defining characteristic of Alawites for uh, who are the, which is the sect of the, of the Esats, um, is that they have a trinitarian view of having three divinities. Um, uh, and so to say you think oneness of God is like a sectarian vision um, uh, 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 And so he was in, oh, that's one hour. Um, anyway, so they were mostly out of So he, he led this uh, Islamist brigade that swept into, into Aleppo in 2012, backed up by a whole lot of young guys from the, from the countryside, None of whom were, well, many of whom were not at all religious. Uh, they were quite happy to smoke around that and um, smoke and drink around that. They, they drank, they, they had girlfriends. Um, many of them were uh, university students, uh, many of them lived abroad. I met a guy who'd been, um, I met a guy who had been, who was this guy's uh, bodyguard, and he'd been a um, shop assistant with Gap in Dubai, and had come back to fight. Um, he was very pleased to talk to me because his boss was a British woman. He said, I never worked with a woman before. It was great. She was, uh, she was much tougher on me than any of the guys in the city. He came back and became this guy's bodyguard. Um, and the other guy who I can't see photograph was a guy called Colonel Kaidi, who was a military defector. But he was totally non religious. He'd been, a, he'd been an army officer in, um, in, in, in the Assad army and he defected. And so these two guys uh, led the revolution between them in, in Aleppo. Uh, however, as the revolution went on, it became more and more Islamist, um, mainly because of uh, the very simple thing, I think, which is that if you're going to die, you, know, you want to believe in God. And, and, and most of these guys did believe in God um, anyway, because it's a very conservative part of, uh, of the world, and northern Syria is very uh, religiously conservative anyway, leaving aside the political aspect of Islam. Uh, it's very socially and uh, religiously conservative. And uh, as, the as the revolution started to fall apart, this idea of dying for your faith and killing for your faith began to take over the whole revolution as a consequence of this event. Thank you so much, Richard. Um, now we'll transition to a discussion between our speakers. We have about 10 minutes for this. And does anyone want to start? Shall I get the ball rolling? Yeah. Um, so here's a question for George. Uh, George, if I understood you correctly, uh, and this of course the promise, premise for the whole this comment rests, uh, so if I haven't understood you correctly, please point it out. I understood you to be saying that re revolutions were not, in fact, not always about religion, because sometimes there were power struggles instead. Um, and I think my response to that is, if, if it's a genuine power struggle, if people are willing to go to extreme lengths to try and gain power, surely they must have some reasonably clear idea of what they want that power for. And so if we're prepared to expand the concept of religion to something a bit more like the sacred, that is to say, a moral cause which is overridingly important and must be obeyed, then surely we can't say that power struggles are separate from the sacred. If people are going to go to that extreme length to try and gain power, they must have some kind of cause which in their mind is sacred. We can't, so we, we have to culture all of this, uh, is theoretically what I'm saying. We, we can't talk about an cultural struggle for power, but there's always be cultural things at stake, I think. All the talks we've had, there's a difference between you know the sort of tectonic plate shifting that trigger a revolution, and then the forces that then take over after that sort of initial burst of energy has been 
released, and I think it's fascinating the issue in, in Syria, and the population point, I think, is a really important one that not many people seem to realise. It's the same in Iraq as well, I think, all across the Middle East. Explosions in populations within constitutional frameworks just aren't designed to cope with, you know, it's, it's sort of something similar that happened to, to Britain in the, in the 19th century, but again, you know, the miracle of the English constitution was that it was able to sort of drip feed powers in the middle class, and therefore we could all avoid this revolution. Um, so I, I guess it depends what we mean by sort of sacred and faith and ideology, whether it can be packaged into this idea of, of uh, it's an ideological position that can be very handy because you can get people to fight for you and they believe that they're going to go to heaven afterwards, and that's obviously a very powerful tool. Um, but in terms of what is pushing that revolution, where, where it comes from, where the need for revolution comes from, it, it, that in itself isn't an ideological thing, I don't think. I don't think we'll just, in, in, you know, the, you know, with the religious point I was making about, you know, college being founded um, 1427, you know, the, since the beginning of the Christian faith, there have been people who thought that the church should be poor, that, you know, priests are too much power, etc., etc., etc. But what had to happen was a, the right set of secular political conditions to emerge in the 16th century for kings and princes to say, well, actually, now the time is right to abandon the papacy for the revolution to happen. Um, so I'm not sure that's... Is that answering your question or not, really? So I guess my response is, what exactly is a secular political condition? Well, uh, what do you call it? international or national yeah, constitutional power struggles. I mean, it's, uh, it's, 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 you know, whose will is law? Who, who, who has their hands on the levers of power and, yeah. and their hands in the, in the, in the, in the cash pot, I suppose, really? Um, I mean, you know, the, the idea that the Catholic Church in England before the Reformation is a purely religious institution is not. I mean, it's, I mean what, is, what was the Catholic Church? It was the sort of, it's the ghost of, it's, it's the remnants of the Roman Empire, right? And it, it gets, it, that's how it exists. And, and, you know, why isn't there a Reformation or Revolution in Spain or Italy? We don't need to have a Reformation in Spain because the King of Spain, you're head of the church in that country anyway. France, it's a bit for half and half, so you do get some Protestants, but eventually go for the Catholic side. It's not a coincidence ge geographically that Protestant nations are the ones that are furthest away from Italy and have the least control over the, the, the Vatican, essentially. Um, so I suppose I was just arguing against mm -hmm. the, the notion that I'm not sure everyone was, thought was the case that sort of religious further alone can sort of bubble up in this pot and then spill over to create a revolution. Because quite frankly, if you're a secular secular leader, if you're a king, if you're Assad, and you just want to machine gun these people or slaughter them, you can. And they have been effective throughout history. It's when the secular concern picks up on the religious one and uses it for its own ends, I think, that the two come together. I mean, if you're, I mean, one thing I would say is that if you define religion as broadly as you do, it's fairly easy to say that any revolution must be religious, because any revolution is going to have some ideological aspect to it. And if you... Um, if you uh, if you say that basically an ideology is, is is a religion, then clearly you're sort of kind of defining yourself in a bit of a circle. I would say. I mean, if you look at revolution in China, I mean uh, that was a, a, a revolution that was um, neither certainly not religious in any sense understood at the time. What was it actually particularly anti-religious? Although the Communist Party was was atheist, but it certainly didn't it didn't it didn't, it didn't immediately play on anti-religious tropes. Um, um, in, in a sense that Europe, most people would understand religion. Um, and of course, it became, you know, the, the, the cult of Mao became one that you could certainly describe as religious, and it certainly, uh, and it certainly adopted very religious forms. Um, even now in Tibet, for example, you can find places where 
they have you'll find people in their homes in, in Tibet sometimes have a, have a picture of Mao and a picture of the Dalai Lama which is always a bit of a shock when you come across them together um, but, uh, but certainly the actual revolution itself I don't think would normally be defined as religious um, though if you define like, Marxism as a religion then I suppose you could so I wonder if one of the points that emerges from this is the whole debate about what counts as a religion what doesn't um, is often quite ideological in itself I think one of the interesting things is, is that um, for many what we describe as world religions, the people that we would think as adhering to those religions don't like the idea of religion, precisely because it implies that these religions have something in common. But of course, most religions in fact think that they're unique. Um, and so, uh, uh, for example, for a conservative Christian, to, to use the term religion to group them together with a conservative Muslim is something that would displease both of these groups of people. Um, precisely because both of these what we would call religions, claim the sense of exceptionalism. And it seems to me this is also what's going on with our concept of the secular, is we have a very strong sense that what, what is the secular is somehow different from religion. But the problem is that the, the, the kind of intellectual content of that distinction is often very, is kind of, that distinction is very common in current Western culture, but the intellectual content of that distinction um, seems to be extremely murky. If only because if we do, if we kind of count up who counts as religious, it's about 85% of the world that counts as religious, and about 15% of the world's population that counts as secular. Surprise, surprise, a large percentage of that 15% live in the West. So it seems to me there's a bit of Western exceptionalism going on here too. So I, I do think we have to be extremely careful when we're saying that's religion um, and, and that's not. I think this is and so this is why I think there is, a, in fact, analytical value in expanding our definition of religion to the sacred more broadly. And it seems to me then. From a cultural historian's point of view, there are then very interesting things to be done about what are the myths, what are the rituals, what are the kind of irrational sides of these ideologies. And it seems to me that playing those up rather than um, thinking just about kind of rational politics is actually a much richer way of thinking about the history of wars. It is, it's quite easy. I'm just thinking about you know, the way we think about, point about what a religion is in Britain of the 21st century. I think in this country, we're so used to the idea of religion being something that you just believe in it, it is almost purely the faith part of it now, right? You go to church on Sunday morning because you believe in it, right? Because the, the ways in which that interacts with your secular political power in this country has now been stripped away so much, right? It doesn't matter which church you go to depending on like, if you can get the vote or be a respected member of your community in, 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 that, in that sort of way. So it's, you know, church... Uh, and this comes back to your point you made about the definition of a religion. I thought it was interesting. I was um, uh, lecturing uh, some Japanese students over the summer and sort of looking into sort of Japanese religious history and really coming to the realisation that there is no such thing as religion in Japan as, as we know it. They have faith structures, right? But they don't have... Um, or they, they, they tried to do this with the emperor in the 19th, 20, uh, 20th centuries, but they don't have in, you know, these sort of networks of power to enforce orthodoxy in the same ways that we do in the Christian churches and that, you know, that that's institutional religion and then you've got religion as purely faith and I think yes we've perhaps lost that distinction to some extent these days because of what's happened in the 20th century in this country. I was saying to Sam before before we started I was, uh, we were talking about this aspect of, of you know what counts as religious belief and and in in countries where you know religion is taken for granted um, as is in the case in most of the Middle East um, Sam was asking me about the sort of meanings of words for religion. I was saying the interesting thing is actually the meaning of what secular is to, in the Middle East. And in a lot of the Middle East, secular just means atheist. 
So if you, talk, if you argue for a, um, if you argue for that the government should be secular, which in, obviously in a Western context means dividing church and state, uh, to, to many Middle Easterners, partly because of the propaganda of their own establishments, um, it has to be said. If you say secular, you mean atheist, so you want governments to be atheist. And um, the, the converse of that is that Islamism, as a, or the belief that Islam is, should be a fundamental part of government structure, um, which is you know, the overwhelming view of Sunni Muslims in, in the Middle East, me also means something different to us. Um, so I, the, the example I was giving was talking to people and saying, why did you vote? This was in Egypt, where they actually you know, did vote in a Muslim Brotherhood parliament and, and president, um, uh, which is you know, an avowedly Islamist government. I said, why did you vote for Islamists? Um, and people would say to me, well, some people said to me, because we want to have what you have in the West. And of course, I was quite new to the Middle East at the time. I was a completely baffling statement. Of course, you know, we think of an Islamist government as being opposite to what we have in the, have in the West. But to them, it made to them it made a lot of sense. To non-political people, because to them, a secular, a, a non-Islamist government was an atheist government. So although they, although rulers like Mubarak, you know, purported to be Muslim, they they were selling themselves as non-Muslim, if you like, to their Western backers or you know, Russian backers in the case of. Assad, um, and and the, the the hallmark of secular government was corruption, dishonesty, uh, this incredible history of these sort of bombastic leaders who, who unlike many of us think that they actually sound just as ridiculous when they make their sort of ridiculous speeches about you know the glory of Egypt when you know when everyone's poor and hungry and so they talk about the you know the the, the the greatness of the Egyptian empire and. Or, this, or in um, you know, Saddam Hussein in Iraq, who was about the mother of all battles and how he was going to defeat the Americans, which of course everyone knew wasn't going to happen. It, looks, it seems just as ridiculous to the Arab world as it does to us. And they associate that with not being good Muslim. They associate, they associate the dishonesty, the, the bombast, the, um, the greed, the arrogance, the, the, the delusion, the, you know, the delusionary aspects as being because they're not simple, pure Muslims. And so when they see the West in a favorable light, they see democracy, they see, um, they see honest politics relatively, they, don't, they see business flourishing without corruption, they know that in the West you don't have to get, you, know, you don't have to pay bribes to get contracts and so on. They say that that is Sharia. And one as you said, you have Sharia in the West. What, what I mean by Sharia is what you have in the West. Um, so they don't necessarily say, so, so, as, as George was saying, the, the, the idea that you know, belief, religious belief is somehow kind of out there and a sort of optional add-on to your political, um, political viewpoint is, is, is very different in, 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 in large parts of the world. I do want to thank everyone again for being here, the audience included. Um, it was, uh, was very interesting discussion.